If a Middle Earth elf lived today in Southern California, how would she celebrate and support the arts, music, and her community? What would Arwen do? Thursdays, 4 to 5 p.m. with me, Tani Tanuvio, on KCI 88.9 FM and streaming live at kci.org. Ellen Salalumin Amentielva. KUCI is now podcasting its public affairs shows. The podcasts are available on www.kuci.org slash podcasts. That is www.kuci.org slash p-o-d-c-a-s-t-s. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari. Mari's a local attorney and privacy consultant and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, Investigative Reports, A&E News, The O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, and lots of other shows. She presented her own 90-minute PBS television special last year, which was called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. I'm really excited about our guests tonight. You know, we've had such a wonderful opportunity through the Poneman Institute to meet fantastic privacy professionals. And tonight we have one of the most well-respected privacy officers in this country who has done tremendous work in the privacy arena and in financial services. Let me tell you a little bit about Janet F. Chapman. She is Chief Privacy Officer of the Charles Schwab Corporation. And as you know, we have investments with Charles Schwab, so yes, that's a, it's a great company. Janet is the Chief Privacy Officer for the company up in San Francisco. In this role, she oversees the creation of privacy strategy, policies, and standards, and she ensures that they're understood by the company and that they're maintained. She also acts as a liaison to various industry consuls and professional groups. She's very active in the Privacy Committee of the Securities Industry Association and the International Association of Privacy Professionals, which I'm proud to be a member of. Janet is also a member of the advisory board of the Poneman Institute's Responsible Information Management Council, and that's where we got to meet her. And she does great work for the Poneman Institute. And she speaks frequently on privacy and financial issues. And um, Janet has worked in several areas since she joined Schwab in 1989. She was the head of customer and account systems, in which she was awarded a patent for developing a new method for opening an online brokerage account. So we should find out about that. And she has also led the company's implementation of the USA Patriot Act. And that was really hard for a lot of companies to suddenly be uh, thrust in uh, lots of requirements. And prior to going to Schwab in 1989, she held marketing and product development positions at various banks, and she was a management consultant for Deloitte. She lives up in San Francisco, actually in that area in Sausalito, one of my favorite towns, beautiful, and she serves on the development committee of the Bay Area Red Cross, so she is actively involved in her community, and we are so thrilled that Janet is with us. Janet, good evening. Well, thank you, Murray, for that very nice introduction. Well, you deserve it. You're wonderful. Tell us a little bit more about your role as the Chief Privacy Officer of Charles Schwab. Well, I have been in the role for three and a half years, as I think you know. And it's a very new role in terms of professions across the country. 
I'm not sure it even existed five or six years ago. But as we know, privacy is a very important issue. And I think it became an important issue for financial institutions with the uh, implementation of what's called the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which was applied to financial institutions. And that's the act that um, brought us the concept of NPI, which is non-public personal information, basically the personal confidential information that belongs to consumers. And it also brought us the uh, annual privacy notice that a lot of us receive from our financial institutions. Right. And and so this is, like you were saying, this is a new occupation. I mean, you've been with Schwab for quite a long time, but now they um, promoted you to this new position, and we're finding that this is actually a new career. Most of the people that I, I just met in Toronto at the Privacy uh, International Association of Privacy Professionals were, were all about four or five years the most in this profession. So um, how do you see this emerging, really, as a career? Well, I think that's a great question. And I think it, I, I think it is becoming a fast-growing profession. In fact, I honestly can't think of another profession that is evolving as rapidly as this one. And that's something that we talk about quite a bit uh, when we get together for professional meetings. Um, I do think that... Um, it is emerging as a career choice, and you're starting to see colleges uh, and universities uh, have courses in privacy and privacy law. In fact, I believe there's a course at UC Berkeley okay. up, in, uh, up in the Bay Area that's offering at least one course in it. And I think you're going to see more of that as it becomes just part of our lexicon and, and becomes a profession up there with CPAs and other kinds of professions. You know, we, we were talking about that when we were in Toronto with the, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and here we are sitting on a campus as well, another UC school, the University of California, Irvine, and people who are students here listening may be wondering, well, gee, you know, what does this entail? What do they mean by privacy? Can you give a little bit of uh, explanation what what you tell your your staff, what privacy means and what it entails? Well, let's, let's think about that. Basically, privacy for a financial institution is all about setting the right practices about how we collect confidential information about our customers. Um, it's setting the policies and practices about how we get it, how we handle it while we have it, and what we do with it. And that's really what it's about. It's, it's really about your personal, and in our case, financial information, as well as your identification information and how we take care of it for you. In a way, the information becomes an asset, just like your financial assets. Right. And, we, and what you were talking about is really the appropriate use of that information, appropriate to be compliant with the laws and, and really a good customer service, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, we, we really take this very seriously. Um, we believe that this is fundamental to our clients' trust in us. And we try to take care of their financial information just like we take care of their financial assets. Exactly. So what are some of the challenges facing the privacy professionals and privacy officers in today's information age? Well, Mari, I think you've got the right term. We live in the information age. And frankly, I don't want to speak for my colleagues, but simply put, because we're in this information age, we have information about ourselves and everybody else everywhere. And access to that information is enabled by an incredible array of technology that no one could even conceive of even 10 years ago. And really, when you think about it, the Internet was really only starting to explode 10 years ago. So no one could think about this massive um, array of technology that we all use and, and live with. And as consumers, we've gotten so used to this technology that we want the convenience that it brings us. Right. But we also want our privacy. And in a way that, you know, that's a bit of a conundrum. It and sure it keeps is. everybody running fast. 
I know, and when you think about all of these electronic devices that we have this private information on, whether it's our PDA, right, mm-hmm. um, or our cell phones, which now also can be these, you know, different handheld devices that have more personal information, and then our tiny laptops, and who knows what else we're going to have. All of this information is just, as you said, ready, readily available. Databases are huge, but they're on a tiny little chip. And so it's, I mean, it's very exciting that we have this information and that we can share it when we need to, but it's also very scary when the bad guys come in. Well, that's true. It's a conundrum, and it's, you know, every company, every university, every governmental entity is is all grappling with this issue about how to work with all the information we have and utilize this wonderful technology that we have at our disposal, but also make sure that we keep the information safe and we handle it properly. Right. And there's and the issue of different kinds of choices. That, that affects the privacy officer as well. And the privacy officer, you really have a huge area that you have to manage. Now, does your office also do training? You have to train the oh, residents? yes. We do a lot of training, um, and we, we um, have several courses that we have on web-based training. But, you know, frankly, we also put together seminars and, uh, that we deliver to customers on the issue of identity theft. We find that our customers are very interested in finding out about those issues and how to protect themselves. So we spend a lot of time doing that, too. Right, and, you know, especially now in this day and age when we've heard about the literally over 90 million people who've been affected by security breaches. And then these bad guys aren't always even in our country, as we know that there's, you know, this these uh, fraudsters who are really in Eastern Europe, in Nigeria, and all over the place. It gets to be a, a real challenge for privacy and security experts. Mm-hmm. So how do you interface, or how do privacy officers interface with security officers? Well, we work in partnership. And basically, you know, we're, we're all working on the same things. Uh, we want to protect our clients and, and help keep their assets and their information safe so that they can grow and we can really participate in helping them benefit with a good financial future. You know, the whole financial industry is really facing all of these challenges of, number one, delivering goods and delivering them quickly and helping people to make trades or to, you know, get access to funds when they need it. But at the same time, it's 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 a real challenge because you want to make sure that you know who it is. You're a liaison to the Privacy Committee of the Security Industries Association. So what is this association doing? Because I know you're real active on that committee. What are you all doing to help each other in terms of the area of securities and investments in the financial industry? Well, you know, it's really an internal committee. We don't actually publish anything. What we do do, uh, frankly, I'm sure you're aware, as a highly regulated industry, and the financial services industry is one of the most highly regulated ones, or at least we think so, um, we are challenged with lots of new laws and regulations and and multiple um, financial services regulators. So, frankly... Um, the SIA has provided this forum for those of us who are in this profession to get together on a regular basis and just meet with our peers in this rapidly evolving area and figure out some of these issues together. Well, yeah, because you're facing the same challenges. I mean, you're all worried about the security. You're worried about the privacy. You're worried about protecting information but sharing it when you need to. So you do have um, similar problems, and, and sharing that information and getting good ideas from each other is terrific. Yeah, so, it's really, well, it's frankly one of the ways that the Poneman Institute has been so successful, I think. Right, in sharing that information. What are some of the, have you developed maybe through this, um, you know, the SIA, the Securities Industry Association, have you developed some best practices for your industry? You know, the, um, the SAA, this is really an internal-facing uh, committee, so I can't really, I okay. certainly can't speak for the SAA. Right. But right now what we do is really just um, discuss new regulations and, and see, see that things are evolving and, and really try to figure them out together. 
So we don't actually publish anything. You know, it's funny when you talk figure it out together. I mean, when when I look at some of these laws, <laughs> everybody's trying to interpret these laws and what does it mean? And, and some of these uh, regulators are also trying to do the same when they figure out, for example, the safeguards rule or some other rule that they're suddenly uh, thrown into to try and figure out what the legislature meant. So I can understand that it... Uh, it probably is a challenge for the, for all of you to put your heads together and figure out what are we supposed to do with this. Well, you know, and frankly, that's one of the reasons why the Poneman Institute Rim Council is also so important. Right, and let's talk about that because I think one of the things that I really enjoy about being involved with Poneman is uh, the Poneman Institute is is that it is really setting forth some great ethical standards. Now you sit. Um, as a a council member, yes. and and RIM, let's talk about what does it mean, responsible information management, or RIM. Well, the RIM Council, and I'm very honored to be a member of the advisory board. Um, and basically, all that means is we get together in addition to RIM Council meetings to really take a look and be a little more strategic and try to future oriented, figure out what we think might be the issues coming up in the next year or two. So that's really what we do. We kind of set the agenda for the council. But the RIM Council, which stands for Responsible Information Management, was formed by the Poneman Institute several years ago. It's made up of privacy and data protection professionals from a whole cross-section of industries. So what you have with that group is an array. You don't have just a single industry sector, but you've got technology and financial institutions and consumer marketing firms and and um, healthcare healthcare and hospitality and so many other industries as well as government entities and some nonprofits and we all get together because we do have the same goals which is figuring out how we're going to grapple with these issues um, how to manage information in the information age and do it safely and appropriately. Right. And that's and, and it's just it's a marvelous opportunity to get together and share information and, and be able to share it, you know, fairly freely, um, in a closed session so that we can exchange ideas, we can help each other with problems and we can just try to figure out the right approaches. And when you talk about right, I think that's one of the things that is is really terrific about that that whole room console is that you're looking at ethical procedures. What is appropriate? What is right? What is what is really going to build consumer trust, customer trust, and be good for business and good for um, privacy? You know, they talk about privacy is really good for business, even though people may not always think that that's really the case. Good privacy sets up good trust, right? Well, that's exactly what I believe. I couldn't have said it better myself. That is so fundamental to the way we try to do things here, and certainly some of the principles that Larry Poneman certainly espouses with all the work that the RIM Council does, is we're trying to do everything we can to maintain that trust with our customers because we believe that fundamentally they have entrusted us with their information. And it is up to us to serve as stewards of that information. Exactly. Larry's been on our show several times. In fact, uh, even when we were in um, Santa Fe, we did a show in in, in the teepee. Oh, did you really? We really did, and we have a picture of that on the website. You might want to take a look. So, oh, that's great. So, yeah, Larry's been on, and, and I think it's really wonderful because we have, like you said, various companies that really work on best practices, and we talk about um, what are some of the best practices for companies. Now, you want to share some of those um, ideas that the Ribbon Council says? What is what is responsible information handling and responsible information management? What are some of the practices that um, companies should have if they want to be considered responsible? Well, you know, one of the things, why don't I talk about it from the perspective of Schwab and some of the things that we do? Okay. I just didn't want to put you on the spot if you weren't allowed to do that. Okay. No, that's okay. Well, you know, I'm proud of our history. We were an early leader in privacy. In fact, we had a privacy policy up on our websites um, well ahead of the implementation of Graham-Leach-Bliley, so I'm very proud of that. 
we're, we were really very early, um, very early leader in recognizing the importance of handling information properly and how fundamental it is to our customers' trust. And Janet, you you know, you're also one of the first companies to have a privacy officer too, right? I, I think that's that's also the case because you've been there for a while. Well, I've been there. I've I've been in the role for three and a half years, and we and my predecessor was in the role for two years before that. So I guess you're right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about some of the best practices, or at least the best practices for Charles Schwab. Well, you know, one of the first things we did. Um, when I took over the role, was to just reach out to our customers to find out what they really did care about. And I, I frankly, I think probably one of the hallmarks of Schwab's approach with privacy is to be very customer-centric. And so we did some research. We asked them if they even <laughs> care about this stuff. Right, right. And guess what? Well, no surprise to you, Mari, but we found that they absolutely do care. Um, frankly, um, I think I can. I think I can quote the statistics. But ninety-six percent of our clients who responded, and we we surveyed thousands of customers, mm-hmm. rated privacy as very important or important issue to them. Right. But right. what was also really important for us to learn was that they rated safeguarding their information and identity theft prevention as being most important. Oh, well over half of them said that. And so, frankly, when we took that and we understood what that meant, we just looked around and decided, well, what can we do to really help ensure that our customers continue to feel comfortable? And so one of the things we did was really focus some of our energy in collecting information about identity theft prevention and really taking on the mantle of educating our customers about how to stay safe. Right, right. So that's one of the things I'm most proud of. And, and the fact that you listen to your customers and know what they want, then you can give it to them. So I know on your website you have some very good educational materials for your, for your clients and for those who are considering being clients as well. Want yeah. to tell us a little bit about the website and what's there? Well, my goodness, <laughs> it changes um, constantly. We're, we're really, we really look at it all the time. But we have all kinds of tips about how to stay safe. Um, we, actually, we actually have a lot of information out there. And, you know, we, let me just share with you some of the tips that we use and okay. how to tell sure. our clients. Sure. Um, first of all, one of the most important things is to just recognize that you just have to be vigilant and stay safe. And, frankly, these are tips that all consumers can take, not just, Schwab customers, but right. we think they're important for anyone who is interacting online. It's just really important to understand this. So first of all, rule number one, and I know you know this as well as I do, keep your computer defenses up to date. Make sure you have adequate and up-to-date security software, and also keep it turned on. Right. I've right. actually talked to customers who have it, and they've, they've gotten all the upgrades, but they don't turn it on because they right. don't find it convenient. Right. That's why it's almost better to be either online with cable or to be, you know, uh, DSL, something where you're really online all the time so that, you know, when you're sleeping or when you're away from the office, you can run the spyware or you can run the, the Norton or whatever kinds of, um, you know, virus protection you have. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, another thing that this is, this is something that we certainly tell our customers, but once again, this is something that's appropriate for everybody. Monitor every single account statement, not just your brokerage statement, your bank statements, your credit card statements, your phone bills, everything that's out there. I'm sure that you, um, having been a victim yourself, you can really speak to the importance of just looking at everything, searching out unauthorized activity, because the faster you catch it, the sooner you can solve it. 
Exactly. You know, I, I, I survey like a lot of my clients who are, who are very astute people, you know, they're business people, but a lot of them really don't look at their checking account statement. Okay. They'll look at their credit card statement, but they don't look at their brokerage statement and they don't look at their credit card statement. And it's almost overwhelming for them to look at everything all the time. If they're traveling, if their business is busy, they just kind of ignore it. And the problem is, you know, that if you ignore it, uh, you're going to lose. And especially if it's a um, like your bank, if you have 60 days to tell them and then you lose if you don't tell them. And then, of course, with your brokerage account, there there is probably some insurance, but you're not covered with the same um, you know, protection, so you've got to look at it. So I think that is a really important issue. Well, now remember, you know, one of the things we did earlier this year was issue our Schwab Security Guarantee. Right. We really... We really wanted to make sure that our clients were reassured, and, and our customers can go look at that. At, frankly, anybody can go look at it online because it's out there. But simply put, it had been our practice for years to evaluate any instance of fraud on a case-by-case basis, and, and we pretty much made these clients whole. You know, right. anytime we saw evidence of unauthorized activity, we made it right. whole. So we just decided, you know, this is what we're always going to do. Let's just make our historic practice a public promise. And that's what we did. And I think that that's reassuring because I think people are afraid because there are not the kind of um, federal laws like the Fair Credit Billing Act and the Electronic Funds Transfer Act that really apply in the same way to the securities divisions. Yeah. Well, we just we felt that it was really important to reassure our clients that Schwab's going to stand behind them. I appreciate that because I'm a Schwab customer myself. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Janet, so let's I, get back to our tips because there okay, are a few let, more that I just want to make sure that our listeners really understand. But before we do that, I want to introduce you again because Lloyd is telling me I have to do that but just in case somebody's driving by. They want to hear who they're talking to and who they're listening to. So we are listening to Janet Chapman, who is the Chief Privacy Officer of the Charles Schwab Corporation, and she's in the process of giving us some tips on how to protect our privacy and our identity, not only online, not only with Charles Schwab, but really with any company and uh, to protect their own identity. So go ahead. Sorry about that. Oh, no. No problem, Mari. I'm very happy to be here talking with you about this very important issue. So, you know, one other point about computers that I've started telling people, I think it's really important for everyone to be careful when they're on a public computer. And I'm sure you're aware of this, too. You know, we're all busy and we want convenience, and we see, we see public computers and we just want to transact things. But the reality is we don't know who's been using it. We don't know if, they, if the, some prior user might have planted some spyware on there, and it's just best to be prudent. Right, and it's, it's a good idea to never do any kind of financial transactions ever on a public computer. Well, that's certainly something that I would think twice about. Yeah, I would never do it. Yeah. I mean, I would only do it on my own computer with my passwords, with my, you know, with my firewalls and, and my anti-spyware protecting me. Uh, absolutely, I would just say that's my recommendation. I would agree. You know, there's, um, I think, unfortunately, when you suffered your identity theft, there were not a, law, a lot of laws in place to protect you and to help you. But, you know, as unfortunate as your circumstances were, the laws have changed. And one of the laws that came about a couple of years ago that I think has just got one of the best benefits for all American consumers is the FACT Act. I'm sure you know all about right, it. Right, right. I help work on it. Well, yes, I thought you did. <laughs> right. But this is something that I tell everybody at Schwab and everybody I know one of the best benefits we all have is to check the ability to check our credit reports regularly. And, and because of the FACT Act, we can all get an annual free credit report, and it's annualcreditreport.com. Right. And it's just an important thing to do. I've done it. I recommend anybody, especially someone um, who is in our client-facing roles here at Schwab, I tell them to go do that first so they can help someone who's perhaps unfamiliar or a little bit threatened about doing it. It is just, it's incredible how much information you get, and that's the first place to see what kind of unauthorized information might be out there. 
Right, and, and then they need to be checking. Right, and they need to be checking their statements with Charles Schwab, though, for their securities because their securities account is not going to show up in their credit report. Their credit cards, their mortgage statements, um, any loans that they have, that's going to show up. And, and if there's a change of address, but really and truly, you know, for our brokerage accounts, that isn't going to show up there, and neither is, you know, if somebody gets workers' comp or disability mm-hmm. payments or commits crimes in our name. So it is great in terms of quite a bit of the financial identity stuff, but there was, you know, that's not, you know, the end all. I think your your um, suggestion that they look at their online accounts and really look at their statements that come in the mail, that is really most important, especially for brokerage accounts, right? Well, I think so. And I also, we tell people all the time to be very cautious with email and phone calls. You know, I'm all the news that's been out there recently about um, pretext, pretexting. Yeah. Well, it's it's a scam. It it's is. an illegal practice, right? And it's, you know we are, you know it's a, it's a terrible thing that happened um, at Schwab. We constantly review our client authentication practices um, to make sure that our client-facing personnel understand. I mean, we call these scams social engineering. Exactly. And these fraudsters are very good. And and so we try to teach our client-facing personnel to understand that there are certain telltale clues when when a fraud is attempting to be perpetrated. And we just really try to make sure that they follow the right kinds of authentication practices and that they know that these scams are out there. You know, it's really scary when we think about just, you know, I think it was about five years ago when the bus, this busboy in New York was able to get into brokerage accounts, not yours, but it could get into Merrill Lynch and other accounts and steal the identities of Oprah Winfrey, Ted Turner, many of these, you know, fortune, uh, these people who have been written up in Fortune magazine as the wealthiest people in the world. And so it is very scary. But these fraudsters are extremely charismatic. And they know how to do this, what you called social engineering. And they know how to do it with consumers as well. <laughs> so we have to be very, very careful about Well, and the other too. thing is that, you know, everyone focuses on phishing. And, of course, phishing is getting a lot of media attention, as we know, and it's a real issue. But it, these scams really do happen by phone. Um, exactly. There, there was a scam that went on last year that we all heard about, and frankly, we used it as an example to our client contact folks to really help them understand how good these crooks can be. And it was a scam. You probably heard about it. It was the jury summons scam. Right. Oh, my goodness. I mean, can you imagine getting a call from someone pretending to be the clerk of, a, of the U.S. District Court saying, our records show you failed to show up for jury duty, da-da-da-da-da-da. Janet, you know, I got a call from a man who was in his late 70s about six years ago. Six years ago, this jury scam was going on, and he had become the victim of identity theft, and he said to me, you know, the only thing I can think of is I got a call several months back from about 11 o'clock at night asking me why I hadn't, you know, gone on jury duty, and I was yelled at, and I had to give my social security number, Mm -hmm. and... And, you know, he said, and, and he was awoken, you know, awakened by this, and he was very scared and felt very terrible about this. And they said, you were in the military, and you didn't, you know, give us your Social Security number, and you're not uh, patriotic, et cetera. And they just shamed him, and he gave all the information. And, of course, I said to him later, he said, do you think that could be it? I said, well, do you really think that somebody is going to be calling you from your city or from your county at 11 o'clock at night to talk about jury duty? You know, so you're right. People just, you're right. They're, they're excellent at doing this. And it people get shamed into giving this information or they uh, use fear to uh, get them to get that kind of information. I know. And it's very sad. But, you know, we're human beings. We want to trust. 
Exactly. You know, even today, I got this very authentic-looking phishing email from the Bank of America, which is my bank. And, of course, I immediately sent it to my premier bank lady and said, I know this is phishing, but I think you better know about it. So um, does does Schwab have, for example, um, some place that you should be sending phishing emails? If I haven't seen one from Schwab, but if there is one out there, is there some place that that should be sent to or forwarded to? Um, yes, actually. We, um, we've been monitoring phishing for quite a while, and do our listeners all understand what phishing and farming and some of these other funny words are? I mean, basically, phishing is derived from the words phony right. and phishing, right. like fly fishing, but phishing with a PH. Right, and you, wanna, you don't want to get hooked. <laughs> exactly. And basically, um, phishing and farming, I mean, an identity theft thief will, will set up a phony uh, website that looks like a real site. Right. And they'll try to lure an unsuspecting client or consumer over to that site and give and, and give up their personal information, and then they'll take it and use it against them. And that's really what it is. We've been monitoring it and sending out alerts to our customers and sending informa- putting information out on our websites about what is phishing and how to stay safe with phishing and all the things that that Schwab will not do and customers shouldn't do, which is clicking on unknown links. Right. You know, it's it's really quite, it's a terrible thing. Yeah. I tell people, look, if you get something that looks really authentic, make a phone call to the number that you know for your brokerage account or for your bank because you need to ask or you need, or if you have a banker that you deal with at your bank, you know, write an email and say, you know, this doesn't look real, is it? Or this looks really real, is it? That's the problem is that if if they know that Schwab will never send them an email asking for sensitive information or an email that, you know, will link to another account, then I think they're going to be safer. Mm -hmm. And we actually do have a, um, a mailbox out on our sites that customers can uh, send us information about this, anything. Um, it's a privacy mailbox. And, you know, to be honest, I'm embarrassed to tell you I don't remember exactly okay, what don't the worry. URL is. Okay, but, but, it, but if they there. get something, that they can, they can go to the website and they can uh, let them know. And yeah. we hear from our clients. We basically put it out there several years ago because we wanted to be able to hear from clients if they had something that they really wanted to understand. And so we, we, you know, we don't get a lot of emails from customers, but we do from time to time, and, and we always answer them. Right. Now, let's get back. You, you had done a lot of work with the implementation of the Patriot Act, mm-hmm. and the whole financial industry is really impacted by that. Can you tell my audience some of the challenges that you faced in implementing that act? There's a lot of requirements for you. Well, you know, I think, you know, just so your audience understands, the Patriot Act was implemented uh, shortly after 9-11. Right. And there are a lot of aspects to it that have gotten a lot of media attention. But essentially, uh, Title III of that law was what pertained to financial institutions. Essentially, um, financial institutions had already had um, anti-money laundering requirements that they had to follow that covered an array of financial institutions. What this act did was extend those laws to cover pretty much anybody that had anything to do with money movement. And really, I think the most important thing for your listeners to understand is that we're required by law to do this, and consumers are really impacted uh, when they become customers of, of any financial institution because the law requires firms to verify the identities of all new customers. Right. And it also requires financial institutions to monitor customer accounts for suspicious activity. So those two aspects are just pretty fundamental to the law. So basically, you know, we had to just figure out how we were going to do that. But what we did at Schwab was, of course, we were going to comply with the law, but we wanted to be very do it in a very customer-focused way to minimize the inconvenience to our customers. So we tried to be pretty unobtrusive about the things that we asked, except where we absolutely had to. Right. So a lot of the things that we do are behind the scenes, and we try to be very quick about it, and our customers, frankly, um, don't even notice it. 
Now, you, I had read in your bio that you had um, developed a patent. Do you want to tell us about that and if, for your new method of opening an online brokerage account? Well, yes, I can share a little bit about it. But basically, I ran our customer and account systems area for um, several years. And it was back in the late 90s when, when the Internet was really becoming a very important channel for uh, financial services firms to use for activities. And our clients were really demanding an easier way to open new accounts. Right. So we just figured out how to do it online um, that would really um, put their information back into a central database so that they really only, really only had to be entered once, and then it would be correct and appear across um, all the other channels. So we'd have one source for the information. And that's really how we did it. And it was really, it was a lot of fun to do. So, so are you are you a techie, Janet? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a business person that happens to have spent a lot of time in technology, I'd say. Well, that's pretty good. I'm impressed, especially that you got a patent. That's uh, that's not such an easy thing to do. Well, that, that, that is kind of special, I have to say. Yeah. I want to just introduce you again. We're speaking with Janet F. Chapman, who's the Chief Privacy Officer of the Charles Schwab Corporation, and she's speaking with us about privacy and protection of uh, her customer information. And she's speaking to us all the way from San Francisco. Now, another uh, thing close to your heart was uh, dealing with some of the uh, issues with, with teenagers. We're finding that more and more teens and young adults are making transactions online, and uh, often with their parents' credit card or a PayPal account. Um, what do you think about all this? Well, I, I think it's a fact of life. I have teenagers, and I don't know if you do, but, um, you know, you try to talk to teenagers because this, this generation of kids has never used anything else but the Internet. So, exactly. So they live on electronics. And they are more techie than we are. I mean, my kids, I have one that's in his late 20s and one who just turned 21, as a matter of fact. But, you know, it's not so long ago that they were teenagers, and, and they have they, uh, they were the ones who showed me how to use a lot of the things on, on the Internet and on my computer, and they're quite savvy, much more than most adults are. Exactly. They really are. It's a fact of life, so we just have to recognize that. So one of the things that we do is we actually conduct an annual survey um, that probes teens' attitudes and behaviors about spending, saving, earning, and borrowing money. Hmm. And in this year's survey, we, we actually thought we'd try to find out a little more about what our teens worried about in terms of financial matters. And what we learned was that almost two-thirds of them actually are concerned about online identity theft and fraud. Hmm. Now, we thought that was pretty interesting because certainly when I talk to my own children, they go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they don't want to hear about it because mom knows about it, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so we thought that was pretty interesting. So one of the things we did, we, we actually do have a Money Wise Kids website that has materials for parents and grandparents to help teach their kids about the ABCs of money management. And we included a module in there on how to stay safe online. And we just felt that, you know, that's just one more way, and it's, it's probably a lot of the same information that we provide to their parents. But it's, it's just targeted to teenagers um, in ways that they'll understand it because this is going to be their, their channel of choice, I would say. Exactly. I mean, they most of them will even read books online, and they won't and, and read newspaper online instead of be reading a regular newspaper. That's correct. So we're finding that you know, for me, I still like to have a book in my hand. I like to have the newspaper in the morning with my coffee, and and not spill it all over my computer. But I but I know that my son never reads the newspaper offline. He's always he reads the New York Times. He reads everything else, but he reads it really online. So you're right that this is a a whole new generation. But let's talk about, well, so how do you deal with this, especially with the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act? If a child is under 13, you have to get the permission from the parent to um, get that information, don't you? Well, so we provide this information um, for parents and grandparents. 
Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. so they're sending it on to their kids, but but you know we don't we don't market to children. So right. we're certainly aware of the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. That's a very important act, and I'm I'm sure it's very relevant for retailers, for for example. Right, right. So how did you do the survey? You had the the, the grandparents and the parents do the survey. You know, I actually can't. I'm not aware of exactly how it was done. Um, but um, we made sure that everyone who was involved in that understood what could and could not be done. Right, right. And so what are some of the other things that you found out of, and about the kids that they, that they, how were they aware of identity theft? I mean, did they just hear it in the news? Just wondering how they were really concerned about identity theft. You know, um, we didn't actually ask them that question. That's a really good question, though. But basically, some of the other things that they um, that they felt um, they they felt like they felt like that um, financial literacy was probably important just because they wanted to be able to pay their bills. Right. But what what I thought was particularly surprising was that fifty six percent of the folks surveyed um, had concerned about concerns about their parents' financial well being. And 46% of the teens um, who owe money are, were concerned about being able to pay it back. Huh. So these kids are maybe a little bit older and already starting to think about college and college funding, and maybe their parents had uh, college plans with, with your company, and so they were worried about, is there going to be enough money for me to go to college? Well, you know what, another point that we found was that 30, 31% of the teens in the survey actually um, reported that they owe some money. They either owe it to their parents or another person, or they actually have some kind of a credit card. Huh. I think it is really important. We've had on this show, we've talked about the, some of the social engineering and the identity theft of teens, and, and there's been some horrible things happening on some of, like, MySpace, where someone will put up a, a site and it's really not them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and they'll do things that, that are hurtful to other kids. And so it's, it's like you talked about, it's such a great, we have a great technology with the Internet, but there's also this really dark side as well, that that uh, causes some problems for for teenagers on the internet, especially if they're going to get involved. And in, I had seen something on television about some of the online poker games and online games that are almost like gambling that students are playing at the universities and and get very involved in that and and almost you know use up all their money, get into credit cards, and then flunk out of school. So um, scary stuff. It is scary stuff, and. Um you know, we just really got started in this area, but it's something that we will be continuing to survey now that, that we've gotten some people's attention on it, because it's obviously a very important issue. And we'll keep looking at the and evolving the tips that we have for adult consumers uh, on our website and making sure that we're applying the, the same kinds of tips to our Money Wise for Kids modules. Right, right. You know, when we were talking before about um, the the security guarantee, I really wanted to get kind of get back to that. That Schwab has the online security guarantee. Um, how um, so? If let's say I got caught on phishing, I got hooked on phishing by something that had some that someone put up a fake website. How would that work? How would I? Um, you know, and if I gave access to perhaps my account with Schwab, how, how would that guarantee work? How would I get that money back? Well, so let me correct you. First of all, it's not limited to online. Right. right. It's a security guarantee. It applies across the board. Okay. Basically, we wanted to keep it very simple, and it covers losses resulting from any unauthorized activity in a Schwab account. Okay. So it's that simple. So um, basically, phishing, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, it happens when a thief used, uses a forged email or a website to trick someone with an account into divulging their password or other access information. Um, so if, it, if um, the client would report that to us and we'd work with them and we investigate every single instance, as, as of course, 
And if it really is um, the result of unauthorized activity of true fish, right. then we're just going to make them whole. What we'll also do is talk to them and, and work with them about what kind of computer security devices do they have on their personal computer, because it could be that that their computer uh, security software isn't up to speed with the appropriate level of security software, anti-spyware, firewalls, et cetera. So we would want to work with them to make sure that they put that um, up on their PC, but they would be covered by the guarantee. And how might it happen offline? Somebody would get access to perhaps their... um their, uh, the mail that brings their uh, account uh, activity? Is that how that might happen? Well, you know, I mean, frankly, um, we all get um, all the media attention with the online identity theft. But I still think that the biggest issue or the bigger issue is, and you're probably totally familiar with this, Mari, yeah. dumpster diving. Exactly. Grabbing mail out of a mailbox. I mean, we get we get calls from customers who've had um, account statements uh, taken right out of their mailboxes. And we tell customers, don't ever leave your mail in the mailbox. And one of the things that I, it's amazing to me that people still do that is they actually put checks in the mail to be posted. Right. Um, and they put up the little red flag. Right. Um, and expect the postman to pick it up. Well, that's a red flag for the fraudster in addition to the postman. So we tell people they really, unfortunately, they really shouldn't do that anymore. In fact, I was just on Montel Williams just uh, just a, a couple weeks ago, and one of the people who was also on the show with me was a fraudster, and she was um, she talked about how she stole mail and how she not only stole mail from mailboxes, but they would put up false uh, post boxes, you know, in the neighborhood, and and then collect the mail from that. So what she suggested was that you go right to the post office and put the mail in the post office instead of into a receptacle that's on a corner. Because oh, my they, Yeah, yeah. She actually showed how they did it. And, and of course, the other thing is the checks. I mean, uh, the, she said she had gotten over $200,000 in one year. By getting the routing number and the account number of banks, checking accounts, and then she would go and write these uh, checks that she would get at Office Depot or Office Max. She'd complete them with the um, account number and the uh, routing number, and then she'd you know write checks to herself and forge it from different people that she stole their mail, and she got over two hundred thousand in one year. That doesn't surprise me. Yep, yep. So they're able to do it. So, you know, more and more we're telling people, you know, it's probably a good idea to do your online banking because you're actually safer as long as you have really good passwords. Now, do you suggest, like, a 12-number and letter mixed for um, for passwords long and a little bit complex passwords? Oh, we, we do suggest um, complex passwords and, frankly, changing it frequently. Right. And as much as we all love to put our family dog or family cat's name as our password, you know, so it's easy to remember, you know, the thief is going to understand that, too. So we really try to tell people, don't do that. But really mix it up. Mix it up. Make it more complex. You know, you raise a good point um, about the mail issue. And, and another thing that we also recommend to customers, if they're comfortable getting it this way, is to convert to electronic statements and trade confirms. That right. way they come from a secure site to their mailbox, to their email box, and you don't actually have to worry about a fraudster that's trolling the neighborhood for uh, mail-in mailboxes. And that's all encrypted, right? And yep. they just decrypt it to be able to see it, right? Yes, that's how it works. And it's it's very important for people to understand how important it is when they're um, using the internet to, and they're going to send something sensitive. I know I've had people who write me an email and they'll say, I'm the victim of identity theft, Mari, I need your help. Here's my social security number. And they'll put it right in the email. Yes, well, um, we have policies against that here. Right, right. We actually tell people they shouldn't do that. In fact, we try to really be very careful whenever you were using a social security number not to use it. Unless right. Unless we absolutely have to. 
And I know and when I've called Charles Schwab also myself, they, you know, they tell you not to leave sensitive information in a voicemail. And that's really important, too, because some people will do that for me. They'll leave sensitive information on a voicemail, even though, you know, I have a private mailbox. I think it's still not a good idea to leave any kind of sensitive information. I mean, consumers have to be savvy, too, even though, you know, the, the company has to be careful and has to be um, cautious about uh, fraudsters pretexting and pretending to be customers, the customers have to really be savvy about really being sensitive to protecting their privacy as well. You know, it's just it goes back to what we were originally talking about. We live in this wonderful age of information and technology, and in, as much as it's a tremendous convenience to all of us, we also have some responsibilities to stay safe. Exactly. Now, in, in, can you give us some best practices or advice that you would give to other firms in the area of privacy practices? Well, you know, I'm, I am always reluctant to give advice too much, but two of the things that I'm, I'm most proud of in terms of the things that we did, well, three actually, because I'm very proud of our guarantee, of course. We've already talked about that. Um, the other thing we've talked about is the fact that we made consumer education a cornerstone of our program. And we really, we spend a lot of time on it, and we get the information out across multiple channels. We certainly have a lot of information on our online channels, but we recognize that not all our customers use our online channels. Right. So we've trained a lot of our client-facing um, representatives who actually on our phones, um, who man our phone channel. We trained them in terms of identity theft prevention and identity theft tips and so if a customer is using that channel, we wanted to make sure they had the benefit of the same information. So we basically have trained them in, the, in a lot of the same tips that we have out on the web so that if a customer calls in with a question or a concern, they get the right information via that channel. We also put a lot of information in our publications so that our customers, if, if they're readers like you and I are, right. um, we can actually pick up one of our magazines or our newsletters and get the same information there. And also you have the privacy notices that go out that are required under the Financial Modernization Act, and, right. and those are pretty easy to understand because I've received well, those. Well, you know, and that's the other thing I was going to bring up is we worked very hard to rewrite our privacy notice several years ago. We wanted to try to get rid of a lot of the legalese, right. make it very consumer-friendly and easy to understand. And we worked, we worked so hard on recrafting the language to make it very understandable and transparent. And then we also pulled in um, a focus group of our customers. And we said, we, we just, we'd like you to read through this and tell us where we've hit the mark and where we've missed it. And, well, they they were very, very clear, and they told us about all the things that we'd missed, and so we went back, back and redid it until we got it right, oh. and we're very proud of that. So, you know, those are some of the things that I talk to my peers about, the, the things that I'm most proud of. And another thing we have done is um, we actually have given some workshops on identity theft prevention with our, with our customers directly. And we find that they find that very helpful, too. And I'll tell you something. I really appreciate those uh, well-written, easy-to-understand privacy notices because we're finding that so many people don't even bother with the privacy notices because they can't understand them and they don't, they don't bother to read them. And then they feel frustrated and actually there's less trust. So I think what you've done in having the more reader and easy-to-read and consumer-friendly Privacy notices actually builds trust. Well, we certainly hope so, and that was our intent when we rewrote it. Well, Lloyd is giving me the high sign. We have about two minutes left. So would you give your website again so people can get some of that information and give us uh, final words of wisdom here? Well, um, basically, our, our one of our basic websites, and as you know, we have a lot, but yep. let me just tell you, it's schwab.com, S-C-H-W-A-B dot com. And you can get all kinds of information, most of which that we've been talking about today, um, under the Privacy and Security tab. Okay. 
Very good. And so I want to thank you so much for all your time, Janet, and keep up the great work. I know the privacy officers that I just was with recently in Toronto all told me how much they really think you're terrific, and they were excited that you were coming on our show. So I'm also real grateful for all your time, and maybe you'll come back next year and tell us about some new things you're doing. Well, that sounds lovely. Um, I really appreciate the compliments, and I've enjoyed the hour. Okay, so you've been listening to Janet Chapman, who is the Charles Schwab uh, Corporation Chief Privacy Officer. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. To learn more about our Privacy Piracy wonderful guests and VIPs, go to KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. And join us next week from 5 to 6 p.m. right here at 88.9 FM in Irvine. And thanks so much, Lloyd, for being a great engineer. Good night. Join us next week. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.